I'd like to invite you, please, to turn to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 31 and following. John 13. I occasionally uh, read or hear about so-called out-of-the-body experiences. I understand that there are even some people here in our congregation uh, who have come so near death that they have had what they think of as a taste of heaven and have come back to talk about it. And there are a number of books that are, that are written about these uh, near-death experiences as they're described. I never know what to make of another person's experiences. You really cannot sit in judgment on what another person has actually experienced. But uh, for myself, I am very grateful that I don't have to count upon some experiences of life after death in order to believe in heaven. We have a much surer word, and it's the word of God. That's what our confidence is based on. There's a passage in, uh, in 2 Peter where Peter describes his experience on the mountain where he saw the Lord transfigured. And the very next verse says, And we have the more sure word of prophecy. Some translations put it as though Peter says, We have the prophetic word made more sure, as though the experience corroborates the word. But actually, it's the other way around. It should, it should say, we have the more sure word of prophecy. In other words, the experience which Peter had on the mountain was not the ultimate basis of his faith. It was the word, the prophetic word. And that's where our confidence lies. We want to talk about heaven this morning and the assurance that we can have that we're going there. Let's begin reading with verse 31, John 13, 31. When therefore he had gone out, the he, of course, refers to Judas, who turned his back on the light and went out into the darkness. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. It's as good as done. It's accomplished. It's though it's happened. The Passover plot had been set in motion. Judas went out to betray Jesus, the events of his arrest and Trial and crucifixion, burial, and his resurrection and ascension were as good as done. Now, he says, it's as good as done. The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, or give him glory of his own, and will glorify him immediately. Those are tough verses. I, I find them very hard to understand. I pondered them a lot this last week and read a number of commentaries, and I'm convinced that I don't, I don't really know what Jesus meant. I'm sure the disciples did, but it eludes me. But I, I have a guess. I think Jesus is saying these are four certainties that sustained him as he faced the cross. The first is that the cross would be the Son's glory. Glory, as you know, is a manifestation of one's glory. I, I think what he's saying is that in, in the cross you see the glory of Jesus. You see his true worth and his value. That's how you know the Lamb is worthy. You see the cross. You see what he did. He saved us, brought salvation to the world, and saved us from our sin and saved us from death. That's his true glory. And therefore he could look at the cross in that way. One of the old church fathers described the cross as Jesus' humble glory. So in that humbling act, he manifested his glory. That's the first certainty that sustained him. The second is that God is glorified in him. In other words, you see the worth of the Father in Jesus' act, his willingness to go to the cross. 
the the world itself doesn't teach us much of God's love. If if you look around at the world, though there are some good things there, some some real joys, uh, you, you might come to the conclusion that God, like nature, is red in tooth and claw. There, there's no love there, but you sure see it in the cross. When you see the cross, you see the true value and worth of the Father. You see His character. He loves us. The third thing that Jesus says, the third certainty, is that God will glorify him in himself. That is, you'll give him glory, uh, a glory of his own. It will be a unique glory, a glory unlike any other glory. No one else in the world has ever done what Jesus did. No one else has saved the world as he did. And then the fourth certainty is that all of this would happen immediately. He will glorify him immediately. In other words, it's just a matter of time. And it was hours, just a few hours, before our Lord was arrested and tried and sent to the cross. In verse 33, he speaks uh, to them as little children, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where, I, where I'm going, you, you cannot come. Now I say to you also, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, sacrificially loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. I think at this point, Jesus launched into what, what I think of as the upper room discourse proper. He had exemplified something of life uh, after his departure by washing their feet. But now he begins to teach them. He's going to teach them about life in the world, how you live in this hard world. And uh, he gives them a new commandment, not a brand new commandment. That's not the meaning of the word. The word new means renewed, a renewed commandment. When you find the same commandment in the Old Testament, Leviticus. In Leviticus, the Israelites were told to love one another. They were going into a, a harsh environment, into the Canaanite world, and, and it was love for one another that would sustain them. We can't expect the world to have much love. Jesus predicted that uh, the world is gonna, going to get colder and more loveless. He said, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. Christians are the ultimate realists. We ought to do what we can to change our world, but realistically our world is not going to change very much until our Lord comes back to change it for good. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars until the end of time. So bumper stickers that say make love, not war, and arms are for embracing and, and do away with hate and those sorts of things. While they're expressions of desire, it's never going to happen, not in this world. The world's always going to be a hard place to live, but Christians can love each other. There's a safe house to run. I, 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 to run to. I can remember when I was a child. I, whenever things got too hard out there in the world, I could always go home. I had a tremendous amount of security and love in my home. I could always go there and be loved, regardless of what was happening out there. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm leaving. You're staying. Times are going to be tough. You men are going to have to love each other. You women are going to have to love each other. See, it's nothing new. It's the renewed. Commandments, what keeps us together in, in the tough times. I have a friend who uh, was telling me last week he uh, had a lot of pressure this week, pressure on his family and personal pressure, and, and he and his wife kind of got crosswise with each other, and so he, he decided to buy her a book. He, he wanted to set things right, so he went out and bought her a book that she had, had wanted, and he tucked a little card in it that he found that showed two little chipmunks and when you opened up the car on the inside, it said, it's you and me against the world, kid. Attack. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's, that's the way we got to look at ourselves. There's a world out there that will probably hate you. 
You know you've got an enemy out there that hates you. It's you and me together. We have to stand together. We've got to love each other. We can't afford to let division and, and discord, disharmony arise among us. We, we've got to love each other here within the family. Now, our Lord intended to go on. He had a lot of other things to say about love, but he got interrupted. So indicative of our Lord, he wasn't so preoccupied with the content of his message that he just wanted to get that across. He was sensitive to people. And he started to talk about love, and, and Peter interrupted him. That's why this discourse is so hard to follow from here on, because it's more of a dialogue than a discourse. Our Lord would start to say something, and one of the apostles would interrupt him, and so the Lord would move over here to meet this need, and he'd start out again, and another apostle would interrupt him, and he'd go over here to meet this need. And it appears that what happened is that when Peter heard Jesus say, "Go, I'm going away, that's all he heard. He didn't hear a thing about our, Lord, our, Lord, uh, our Lord's concern about the family loving, uh, the, the members of the family loving one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Ernestine, Jesus said, I'm leaving. And that's all heard. That's all Peter heard. He said, where, where are you going? These men had burned their boats, burned their bridges, so to speak. They had aligned themselves with the Lord. And now he's telling them he's, he's going he's gonna to leave them. And they were devastated. It struck me as I read through it this time that he calls them little children. And, and what I envisioned in my mind was uh, some... Uh, statesman involved in shuttle diplomacy who's out there uh, trying to reconcile nations and he's, he's doing things that, that, that have national uh, importance and impact and he's trying to explain to his little boy what he's doing and all his little boy knows that his daddy is going to be gone for a while and, and, he, and he doesn't understand the significance of what he's doing. He's just concerned with the fact that his father's going to be gone. And he says, Where are you going, daddy? And then that's Peter's question. Where are you going, Lord? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. Now, it's true. Peter was was crucified later, if, if we can believe the tradition, in Rome, upside down. He did follow the Lord later through death. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Now, we, we think of that as just self-will and self-confidence, but I think Peter really meant that. Peter was the one who whipped out his sword and tried to protect our Lord in the garden. Now, he was willing to, to lay down his life for the Lord. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. See, Peter had a lot to learn before he before he could follow the Lord. He had miles to go before he slept. He had to learn how to fail, for one thing. He had to learn how inadequate he was. He had to learn more about the Lord's sufficiency. Augustine once said, every man is immortal until his work is done. And I think we can extend that to say every man is immortal and every woman is immortal until God's work in them is done. Whatever it is that God wants to do in our lives, we're immortal until he does it. And he takes us home. That's what he says to Peter. Peter says, I want to follow you, Lord. And, Peter, and the Lord says, you will follow me, Peter, one of these days, but not now. You have to learn what a failure you are first and how to recover from failure. And you have to learn how to feed my sheep. And there are things to be learned. And, and then you can go home. Now, you can, you can imagine how this must have shattered Peter. As a matter of fact, it's so suppressed him, you don't hear a thing 
from Peter until chapter 18. I think he was just just devastated by this. The Lord was leaving, and he would deny him, and, and they knew that someone would betray him. And I think all the apostles were troubled and stunned. They didn't know what to say. And, and that leads us into this next section. Our Lord picks up their troubled heart, and he responds to it in chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Literally, stop being troubled in heart. He, he knew. He, he knew they were distressed. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, it's always the cure for a troubled heart. It's faith. It's what Jesus said in the boat to the, to the men in his boat. When, when the storm struck and the boat began to go down. It, it's always the response that Jesus makes. When we get troubled, when we get anxious, we get upset. He says, believe in me. Faith is always the answer to a, to a troubled heart. But our Lord never left it there. We should never harangue people simply with a command to believe. Because you've got to have something to believe. You have to have something to count on. And so what follows, I believe, are the things we should believe that keep our hearts from being troubled. That's chapter 14, or at least the first part of chapter 14. Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You have to have some facts to believe. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, John Bunyan describes the pilgrim, Christian, making his way to the celestial city and all the experiences he had along the way. And comes to a hill, a very steep hill, and he's down on his hands and knees crawling up the hill. And times are really tough, and he's sighing and occasionally he gets out his scroll. And he reads it about the joys that are ahead, and he keeps scrambling up the hill. And he comes to an arbor that was planted by the, by the, the Lord of the hill, a place for pilgrims to rest. And he crawls into the shade of this arbor. And uh, he begins to read his scroll, and, and suddenly his attention is caught by the beauty of his robes that have been given to him. So he starts contemplating the, the beauty of his robes, and finally he falls asleep, and he, and he sleeps too long. And while he's asleep, the scroll falls out of his hands and rolls down the hill. And, and then he wakes up, and it's dark, and he realized he stayed too long in the arbor, and he, and he gets up and starts crawling his way up the mountain again. And as he gets almost to the top of the mountain, two men mistrust and... Uh, I've forgotten who the other one is now. Meet him, and they say they're, they're lions on the other side of the hill. And we're turning back. We're not going ahead because of the lions. And, and, and Christian reaches in his, in his tunic for a scroll to read what to do about the lions, because that's always where he turns when times get tough. And he discovers that the scroll has, has fallen out of his hands. He doesn't have the scroll, so he has to go all the way back to where he dropped it, and, fi and he finds it. And then he run rolls the scroll, and he learns from the scroll that the lions are chained. And he's safe so he can go through. And though the lions roar and he's strained at the chains, he knows from the scroll that he's safe. See, his heart isn't troubled any longer. That's what the Word does for us. These are the facts to believe. Now, there are a bunch of them. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. That's the first thing to remember is that there's a Father's house. We can know for sure that there's a heaven. There's life after death. The end of our life is not oblivion. We, we don't just cease to exist. The end of our life is not incarnation. We're not going to come back as an anaconda or a crocodile or, or even another person. At the end of our life is the Father's house. And I love that analogy 
You know, these, these metaphors, these, these allegories are so helpful because they connote so much more than the words themselves denote because you know what a father's house is. You ever been on the parade of homes? We go every once in a while. I tag around after Carolyn. She's always looking at stuff. I just kind of serve as a taxi driver and, and I wander through. And beautiful, beautiful houses. But they aren't homes. They're cold. There's no love. I'm sure there will be love there someday, but when you go through, they're just cold houses because the Father isn't there, see. It's that analogy. It helps me so much. Heaven is like the Father's house where there's warmth and there's security and, and there's love. and there's a, you're going, It's like going home. That's all. It's like going home. I can, can remember as a, as a young man going off various places into the military and off to school and various other things. It never was home. Barracks was never home. Dormitory was never home. I was always going home, back to my father's father's house. It's uh, also described here as a spacious house with many dwelling places. Remember how the King James translation translates that phrase, the authorized version? In my father's house are many mansions. I, I, as a kid, I, I sort of grew up with the King James Bible. I still quote out of the King James. I, I can't get it out of my mind. And... Uh, uh, I always think of this verse that way. In my Father's house are many mansions. Here's what happened. The, the reason the, the, author, the, the translators of the King James, the authorized, translated, uh, translated this word mansions is because they misunderstood what the Latin Vulgate was intended to convey. Jerome translated this word dwelling places as mentionis in Latin, which is not a mansion. They misunderstood the Latin word. It's a stage stop. It's a place to rest. That's the idea. Pete Amon took me up in the mountains one time behind Oriana. He was raised up there on a ranch, and he knows that country like the back of his hand. And, and uh, he, he took me up uh, to a stage stop, the intermediate stop between Boise and Silver City. It's still up there. It hasn't been vandalized because most people don't, don't even know it's up there. And Still log cabins, roofed log cabins. And, Really an interesting place. It was the place where you could stop on the way to Silver City and you could get out of the stage and stretch your legs. They could rest the horses and sometimes they'd rest up overnight there. It's a resting place. That's what a mansionis was to Jerome. And that's what, that's what the Father's house is. It's a place to rest up. As the, as the Negro spiritual put, put it, I'm going to lay down my burdens there, down by the riverside. You know, the, 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 the slaves that we brought over really had no place to lay their burdens down. They, they, they couldn't knock off on the weekend like we do. They worked seven days a week. They didn't have a vacation in the summertime. They didn't retire when they were 65. And that's why a place to lay their burdens down was so important. See, we carry these burdens all through our life. But one of these days, we're going to step into the Father's house, and we're, we're going to lay all these burdens down. All the, 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 the stress, you know, it's taken such a toll out of our bodies and from our minds. It's all going to, we're going to lay it down. It's going to be a place to rest. Richard Baxter, the, uh, the old 17th century Puritan, describes uh, that laying down of burdens this way. He says, there's no such thing as grief and sorrow there. 
Nor is there such thing as a pale face, a languid body, feeble joints, unable infancy, decrepit age, piquant vapors, painful sickness, gripping fears, consuming cares, nor whatever deserves the name of evil. Carolyn pointed out at the women's retreat that there's no evil there. It's like going back to Eden. We've lost paradise, but it's paradise regained. There's nothing of evil there. Indeed, a gale of groans and sighs, a stream of tears accompany us to the very gates and then bid us farewell forever. I love that. There won't be any hyperactive children there. There won't be any hyperactive husbands there. Be paradise regained. We'll lay down the burden of our past guilt and failure. You know, I woke up this morning thinking about dear old Bill Buckner. Buckner, you know, is the first baseman for the uh, Boston Red Sox. And he booted a grounder last night that if he had caught it, it would have been the end of the World Series. Boston would have gone, they would have, they would have won the pennant. But he kicked it. And if they don't win today, Buckner, to the end of his days, is going to be remembered as the guy that kicked away the World Series. Like uh, Roy Regals, the fellow that ran the, the wrong way in a Rose Bowl game back in the 30s. Everybody remembers Roy. Oh, yeah, I remember you're the guy that ran the wrong way. <laughs> and that's the way Buckner will be remembered. He's the guy that kicked the World Series. And a lot of us have things like that in our life. We look back and remember the things that we've kicked. And we can't forget and I suppose that we'll always remember there, but, but it won't matter. See? All those cares and hurts and heartaches, and those things will all be gone. So there is, there is a heaven's a sure thing. And uh, it's a resting place. Jesus says, if it weren't so, I would have told you. He's not accommodating himself to us. He's not saying, well, those folks down here believe in heaven, so I'm going to humor them. No, he says, it's true. It's true. And I go to prepare a place for you, he says. I I always find it hard to go from one place to another. I've moved a number of times, and I'm the kind of person who puts down roots and build relationships. It's kind of hard to tear all that up. One of the hardest things for me was to move from, from California up here, although I was never gladder to be out of a place in my life. I had a lot of friends there. and It was just hard to come up here. And you, you don't know what to, what to do, how to act. You know, I didn't know where the grocery stores were. I didn't know where the drugstore was. I had to go find a barber. It may be hard for you to believe that I have a barber, but I did. <laughs> she puts it, he pays me for the hunt, not the haircut. <clears throat> I mean, I pay him for the hunt. You, you, you have to start finding friends again and, and get, getting yourself located and rooted in a community. and It's just so nice to have someone there who's ready to help you fit in. That's what our Lord says. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's going by the way of the cross uh, to prepare a place for us. And when we get there, he's going to be there. And then he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming back to get us. Like MacArthur said to the the people of the Philippines, I will return. He's coming back. 
Whether he comes for us at the second coming or he comes for us at, at death, like Stephen, who saw the Lord on the right hand of God when he, when, just before he died, he's going to come back and he's going to get us. Like uh, Helmut Thielicke, the old German theologian, says, when I see the Lord, I'm going to say, I knew you meant it. I knew you meant it. He's coming back. And we're going to be with him forever. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, um, uh, I better read it, it just slipped my mind. That also is uh, a sign of the declining body. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the bottom line. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, that's what makes heaven heavenly. Our Lord is there. And uh, what makes hell so hellish is that our Lord is not there. You see, none of us have ever experienced the total absence of God in our life. And none of us have, experienced, have ever experienced the total presence of God in our life. Heaven is the complete presence of Christ. Hell is his total absence. And the thing that will make heaven such a wonderful place is that our Lord is there. Clark was telling us that he was trying to explain, Clark Petticord was trying to explain the death of his father, Shauna's grandfather. And uh, he couldn't get it across to her very well. She couldn't understand that her grandfather had gone home to be with the Lord. But uh, a bit later, he heard her walking through the house singing that little song that, that we teach children. Heaven is a wonderful place, full of glory and grace. I'm going to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. That's what makes heaven so heavenly. Our Lord Jesus is there. And we're going to experience him fully. And uh, the thing that, that we should know is that all of this comes to us because of what, what our Lord did. It's not because of any work that we perform. It's not because God looks at us as someone who is worthy of it or who deserves it or who has behaved in such a way that, that we're qualified for it. I've mentioned before my friend Ted Wise, who was involved in the filthy speech movement at, at Berkeley and, and just the most unlikely sort of Christian that you'd ever meet. you just never think of Ted coming to Christ, but uh, eventually he did. And... Uh, he said a number of times, when I get to heaven, I'm sure that some of my old cronies who have gotten there also are going to look at me and say, Ted, how, how did you get up here? And he said, I'm going to point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. That's how we get there. We align ourselves with, with Jesus. Uh, I've mentioned my friend uh, several times, Bob Tabor, a uh, young man that I met back in California who was gay and who became a Christian and who struggled and struggled with his homosexuality. He wanted to be rid of it, and he, he, just, he just kept losing. He'd win for a while, and then he would lose. And uh, I picked him up one day. Uh, he was a window dresser in a 
a very talented artist, and he worked as a window dresser in a, a store and just off the Stanford University campus. And I picked him up, and we were driving through the campus. And uh, I looked at Bob, and I said, Bob, how, how's it going? And he buried his face in his hands, and he started to weep. And he said, oh, it's just the pits. I can't make it. And, and you know the story. I, we were hit by a moving van. The moving van ran a red light and, and hit my little Volkswagen, and Bob was killed instantaneously. And, and I, what has endured in my mind is Bob looking at me and feeling so much shame and embarrassment. And the next face he saw was the Lord. Saying, it's okay, Bob. I just wanted to bring you home. See? There's a poem, that, that one of Ruth Bell Graham's poems that has stuck with me over the years that I think uh, applies to, uh, uh, to Bob and to others. Perhaps she writes, he landed on that shore, not in full sail, but rather a bit of broken wreckage for him together. He, that is the Lord Jesus, walks those shores, seeking such who have believed a little, suffered much, and so been washed ashore. Perhaps of all the souls redeemed, they most adore. I, I'm, just, I'm just glad that we don't have to work for it. There, the Lord expects growth. He expects progress. He wants us to become more and more conformed to his character. But we don't, we don't get to heaven because we're good. Because we've done something right. We get there because he prepared the way for us, you see. And one of these days he's going to come back, either through death or he's going to appear one of these days in the air. And we're going to meet him in the air. And Paul says we'll be, we'll be with him forever. Now the last thing I want you to know is that we can be sure that we're going. Uh, people ask me every once in a while, not too often, but occasionally, are you going to go to heaven? And I say, yep. And that sounds very audacious. But uh, w- we can have that kind of assurance. Jesus tells us that we can. That's not, that's not audacity. That's not arrogance. You see, a Christian is someone who, who believes what Jesus has said. And if Jesus says you can know, then you can know. You don't have to be agnostic. Or afraid that you're not going to make it, Jesus says you can know. Look, look at look at verse five. Thomas, who is our uh, resident uh, agnostic and doubter among the apostles, Thomas said to him, "Lord, we don't even know where you're going." Apparently, he had missed the point of what Jesus was saying. Jesus had said, "I'm going to the Father's house." Thomas said, "Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Or how can we know the way?" Listen to this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You want to get to the Father's house? Then you've got to come through Jesus. As the song puts it, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. The only way to get there through Jesus. Remember back in the 60s, the signs, one way. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He tells you the truth about life and death and heaven. And he is the life. He imparts the life of God to us. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. I'm not imputing to him something he hasn't already said. He said it. And therefore, I can know, I can know what assurance that gives us.
Now, what, what follows is a, a rather complicated uh, uh, conversation. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Oh, excuse me, verse 7. If you have known me, Jesus said to Thomas, you will have known my Father. You know me, you know my Father. From now on, you, you know him and have seen him. Jesus' primary task was that of revelation. He came to reveal the Father. God is invisible. We can't see God, but we can see what he's like in, in Jesus. That was his, one of his fundamental tasks. It's, it, was, it was revelatory. He wanted us to see what God is like. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough. We're content to let you go if you'll let us see the Father. That's the hunger that everyone has. To see God in a distorted form, that results in idolatry or in the worship of idols. We want to see our gods. We don't realize, perhaps, that Jesus is the one who came to reveal God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And you don't have to look at a picture of Jesus. It's unimportant what Jesus looks like. I, I like uh, Hook's head of Jesus, for example. And, but I, you don't have to have that sort of thing because it doesn't matter what Jesus looked like. What matters is what he did and what he said. That's how you know the Father. When you listen to what Jesus said and you look at what he did, then you're listening to what the Father has said and you're, and you're seeing the Father. That's the way the argument goes. Jesus said to Philip, Philip! Have I been so long with you? A little note of exasperation here, I think. And yet, you have not come to know me. Actually, the you in the first line refers to the apostles. It's plural. Have I been so long with you, apostles? And yet you, Philip, have not come to know me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you, Philip, singular, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding, me, uh, abiding in me does his work. That's the whole point of the incarnation. The Father was dwelling in a man. Jesus was fully man as well as fully God. And that, that incarnation, that enfleshment, was a, a revelation of the words and the works of the, fathers. Believe, of the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. That is, there is... A mutual indwelling, a perfect union and unity of Father and Son. You look at the Son, you see the Father. You hear the Son teach, you hear the Father teach. Otherwise, believe on the account of, of the works themselves, he says. In other words, if you want to know God, you, you just have to know Jesus. If, if you want to hear the words of the Father, you just have to listen to the words of Jesus. There isn't any other way. That's it. But if you've listened to Jesus and you've believed in what he has to say and you've put your trust in him as the way, the truth, and the life, then you know the Father. And I know the Father. And one of these days, we're going to be in the Father's house. That's our certainty. We don't need to question that. We're going to be together for eternity, you and, you and me. We're going to see the ones that, we've, that, that we love, that we've sent on before. They're going to have their redeemed bodies. I, for myself, I don't believe in soul sleep. I don't think that the, the body resides in the, in the grave and we free float as spirits throughout eternity until resurrection day. I, there's no time in eternity. I don't understand that, but there's no time in eternity. And, and, and as Paul puts it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you're going to be with me in, in paradise. Your soul doesn't sleep. Your, 
You're with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I think we have our resurrection bodies. We get it all now because there isn't any time in eternity. That's sort of mind-blowing, but that, I fully believe that. So one of these days, we're, we're going to step into eternity like Enoch did, just pass from this life to that. And the thing that we dread, death, just becomes a transition from this life to another. It's like moving from California to Boise. And our Lord's going to be there to meet me and you. And He's going to gather us into the Father's house where there's warmth and love and security. and There's just no evil there. There's nothing to, nothing to fear. And, and, and you and I can be sure. I've mentioned before my friend uh, John Landreth, who uh, is the best friend I ever had. And uh, he went to be with the Lord recently. And the men in my Wednesday morning, in our Wednesday morning Bible study, very graciously sent me down to California to say farewell to John and walked into the, the waiting room at Stanford Memorial Hospital where he was undergoing chemotherapy. And John's one of these big, brusque uh, fellows, always talks uh, uh, way too loud. And uh, as I walked into the, into the waiting room, he said, Hey, Roper, he said, come over here. We're planning my funeral. And uh, everybody in the waiting room looked at us and felt like E.F. Hutton. He had his big yellow pad, and he was working all this out, and he, everybody could hear us. And he said, at the end, I'm going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. He said, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And then he had to go in for his treatment, and this, there's this woman right across the way from us. And she said, oh, I wish my husband had that, that kind of faith. He was, he was inside. And see, you can. You can have that kind of faith. It's a sure thing. Jesus said it was so. He said, if it weren't so, I would have told you. Frances Simpson, uh, uh, Ann Petticord's mother, went to be with the Lord back in 1976. And uh, just shortly before her death, she, uh, she wrote a little note and asked me to read it at the funeral. And I very often read it at funerals because I think it's so helpful. I'd like to read it now. She said, if there were a train or a plane or a bus or a boat or a car leaving for the city of heaven, I would buy my ticket and be frantically making preparations to go and not miss it. But I have my ticket. And I did not have to pay for it. It was given to me by a man named Jesus. He bought it by being on trial in the city of Jerusalem. And paid for it by dying at Calvary, and he gave it to me on the third day when he rose from the grave. I have the ticket to heaven, in my in, not in my purse, not in my wallet, not in my pocket, but I have it fastened to my heart. I won't have to look frantically for it when time comes that I need it to get into the city. If I should get there before you do, I'll be waiting for you. And if you should get there first, wait for me and meet me. I wish we could go together because even if I went to New York all by myself, I would be afraid. So I leave you in the hands of Jesus and the angels to go with you. If you haven't got your ticket yet, all you have to do is accept him, accept it from him, and thank him, thank him for paying for it by dying for you and loving you so much that he would do this for you. Let's pray. It seems to me that there are three responses to a text like this. If, if you're here and you have never committed your life to Christ, then you probably are afraid of death. 
It's that fear that the enemy uses to keep us tied up in knots and inhibits us, frustrates us. But if you just give your, give your life to Jesus, you open up your heart and ask him to be your Lord, thank him for dying for you, then you can know. You can know for sure. It was his blood that purchased the ticket to heaven for you. He did it for you and for me because he loves us. You can know. As Paul puts it, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Someone has observed that, that we can only say for me to live is Christ. We can only say to die is gain if we say for me to live is Christ. If we say for me to live is money, then to die is to lose it all. If for me to die is power, or for me to live is power, then to die is to be impotent. If for me to live is fame, then to die is to be forgotten. But if for me to live is Christ, then to die is gain. So just put yourself in the Lord's hands. Thank him for dying for you. Receiving, Receive him as your Savior. The second response, I think, for those of us who already know the Lord is to thank him for doing away with death. Would you do that? Would you just praise him and thank him for loving you enough to do that for you, to, to put to death the, what Paul calls the last enemy? Thank him for it. And the third reaction I think we ought to have is to want to share it with somebody. This is good news. There's a world full of people out there that are frightened to death of death. They live in mortal terror because they know they're mortal. And we have the words of eternal life. We can set them free from the fear of death. Would you ask God to give you the opportunity this week to share with someone the truth that you've gained from this passage? See, our task is simply to befriend people and to impart the truth. That's all. Ask God to give you an opportunity this week to share this with some friend, to, to go through this passage and let them know that they don't have to fear death. There are certainties. They can, they can know they're going to the Father's house. You don't need to press. You don't need to force yourself on someone. If you just ask God to give you the opportunity, he'll, he'll open the door. Lord, we do this morning thank you so much that you have set us free from the fear of death. What a liberating thing that is. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.